Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And before we go any further, I want to thank all those who pledged in support of Talking Animals last Wednesday or before. I really appreciate the donations, as does the station they supported. Good old WMNF. Thank you. As for today's show, my guest is Jackie Poon, filmmaker, producer, cinematographer of Pandas, Born to be Wild, the latest documentary in PBS's Nature series. Filmed over the course of three years, the movie shores up some important gaps in our knowledge about wild pandas to accompany what we've learned about their captive counterparts. For example, it's customary to see considerable tension and hoopla surrounding a panda cub born at an American zoo. But unlike the images that emerged from those settings, where mom and baby are typically relaxed, playful, and friendly, this documentary finds and illustrates that wild pandas are solitary and territorial. Another major facet of the documentary is that the film crew follows the training of a young panda born in captivity, learning how to be a wild panda, then he's released. We'll hear more about assorted pandas and Pandas Born to be Wild, which premieres on your PBS station tonight when I speak with Jackie Poon in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Meanwhile, later in today's show, I'll speak with Maria Matlock, marketing and PR manager at the Humane Society of Tampa Bay about its Wagaween extravaganza, which includes a costume contest for kids and dogs. They'll be held this Saturday, October 24th. Right now, though, let's talk pandas with Jackie. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, texting 813-433-0885. Speaking from China via Skype, this is Jackie Poon on WMNF on Talking Animals. Good morning, Jackie. Morning, Duncan. How thank, are you? I'm so good, and thank you so much for joining us. I should let our audience know that, uh, again, I mentioned you were speaking from China, which means you are 12 hours ahead, so you're doing this interview at uh, a little after 10 p.m., so I appreciate you uh, accommodating our uh, ongoing hope to always uh, speak to our guests live in case our listeners want to pose a question or touch base by email or text, so thank you very much. Sure, my pleasure. Um, Thank you for having me. You bet. So congrats on the new film, which I found fascinating and illuminating, and I'd like to circle back, of course, to discussing the film in a moment. But first, given that you helped shoot the film and also appear on screen offering some commentary, I'd like to find out a bit more about you first. How did you initially get interested in nature and wildlife? What what did animals mean to you as a kid? Sure. Um, Well, my background, actually, I was born in Beijing, so, you know, relatively speaking, is very crowded city, even, you know, back 32 years ago. And then I moved to Hong Kong. And, you know, I think nature is not always been part of my life, but it's something that I'm always curious about. So um, I think I, I had the opportunity to move to the UK when I was 12 years old. And that sort of really led me into the world of wildlife and become really interested in, you know, Besides just watching natural history documentaries on TV um, and listening to the radio, um, I actually get to see it more for myself and going out, you know, to the country parks in the UK. Um, And, you know, since then, um, I was fortunate enough to have um, to have the opportunity to going to uh, a university in um, Falmouth in, in the UK. Uh, in Cornwall, so a very small town, but um, there is where I started my career as a natural history camera person and a, a producer director um, on a course called natural, um, the Marine and Natural History Photography. So it's it's pretty um, sort of narrowed down to just one specific skills. Um, but yeah, I was you know that that was what the sort of what really brings me into the world of sort of cinematography and photography and yeah and I, you know I think without that transition of moving um, you know having the opportunity to move from place to place you know from Beijing to Hong Kong to in in the end actually move to um, the UK I would I don't think I would have the you know the the greater joy of you know being a being a natural history filmmaker. Yeah, so it sounds like a big part of it was just this sort of uh, more global view that the moving in those ways afforded sure. you. And I'd be yeah. curious, though, because as you say, that, that program that you entered is very specific. So from the time that you moved to the UK at, at 12, I guess, were there some pivotal experiences, things that you were exposed to 
that put you directly on the path to when you did enter that uh, academic program? It's like, well, here's exactly what I want to do because I've seen this, I've done this, this has kind of been uh, exciting to me along the way. Sure. Um, Well, I mean, I would like to tell people that, yes, you know, that's, you know, something that I want to do from when I was very young age. But in fact, it was something that sort of um, I did my gap year. So I did my traveling and I'm not very, you know, all that good at academic, let's be honest. Um, So I think after, you know, after not being very good with my study, um, I sort of take off a path into um, doing more creative um, artwork. um, And, you know, I found photography. And that's when I did a specialized course on photography for one year, uh, sorry, for two years. Um, and in the end, they asked me, you know, sort of, what do you want to do after this? Do you want to go to university? Because that, you know, that could be a, a path to go into something you want to do and, you know, sort of go further with your photography, but more in a specialized way. And, you know, I knew I wanted to do something to do with natural history, but, you know, there's always the the people that tells you, like, what is more, you know, what like, what kind of path that would lead you to more of a successful future. Mm-hmm. Um, like what's more, more is one of those things. Like yeah, what, right. what's I mean, more natural, practical kind of, uh, hair, hair. right. That's yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, natural history is one of those things that people take it as a hobby, but you know, really getting into it for a lot of people, you know, it's a very almost treacherous, um, path, um, you know, take years to actually get into, um, be just being an assistant. Um, sure. but for me, <laughs> you know, being, relatively naive back then and now think back i was actually really lucky to be naive and didn't really you know sort of listen to um people's advice because they said to me you know it's better off doing advertisement and things like that but Mm -hmm. for me i look back at all the work i've done over the two years and every single piece is natural history so yeah you know i kind of just basically saying to myself you know this is what you have to at least try otherwise you know you can't look into a mirror in the morning and be like okay okay i never tried something that i knew that i want to be successful in yeah well it's another testament to how passion can sometimes transcend whatever limitations and now i think if you went back to those people who said hey no you really should do advertising or something else you could just sort of present them a reel or a cv and say well here's what i've been doing since we last had that conversation and it seemed, seemed, <laughs> yeah, to, seemed to work out pretty well so that that two-year photography program was that still photography or was that video or film even then um that was a that was a very <laughs> the journey i think making it to where i am now um is is nothing short of um a bit of a uh to myself anyways bit of a miracle because it you know for me the starting point was photography yeah um but um long story short i wanted to do um, something that sort of challenged myself more. So I sort of said to myself, you know, out of the three years university, there would be, um, by the end, I want to be able to go abroad from the UK to a different country um, and do my final year project. Um, and that pushed my, I pushed my boundary and myself to actually take up video, um, which is something I'm, I wasn't very comfortable with back then. Um, and I wasn't taught. So I did a lot of self-learning and mm. also I bombarded a lot of teacher that doesn't actually teach me um, just so that they can teach me more in video and skills of how to make a film. And then, you know, I get inducted to the kit from the you know, from university so I can take it out on my trip. Um, so, you know, on the way, I think a lot of people helped me out. Um, with this and I actually made a, um, a small project um, the you know end up having having the opportunity to go to go to the states, go to Oregon, um, and did uh, a tour for, uh, in various of university across the states hmm. um, on on a on a project about mushroom and fungi. Um, oh wow! And um, yeah, so that was you know I mean looking back at it, um, I went to um, Ecuador, and that was a pretty bold move because I only had. English and Chinese um, behind me as language skills. And the first when I when I arrived in Ecuador, the first thing struck me, and I have missed it completely, is that they don't speak Chinese or English. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of have to start again 
Um, but you know, I think you know, some some somehow my luck have helped me all the way to here, really. And, yeah. And you know, I I'm, I'm the first generation for in my family to actually move back to China um, from you know sort of migrating to the UK. So yeah. Wow. Well, once again, I think we really see that you were a man undeterred by advice against going on a, a certain path or by landing in Ecuador and realizing, hey, I don't speak Spanish. And uh, nonetheless, <laughs> I'm going to forge ahead and uh, all kinds of other things. Let me let folks know this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And if you just tuned in, my guest is Jackie Poon, producer, cinematographer of Pandas, Born to be Wild, the latest documentary on PBS's Nature series and which premieres tonight on PBS Stations nationwide. Film is illuminating in all kinds of ways, which we'll get into in a moment with Jackie. He's speaking to us, by the way, from China via Skype. If you would like to ask Jackie a question about pandas or the film, or offer a comment of otherwise, please call 813-239-9663. Email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So after the uh, foray to Ecuador and the uh, Oregon cross-country trip about mushroom and fungi, is there a film prior to Pandas, let's say at least, that affected you the most, either professionally and or personally, where you thought, well, I'm down this path, but now I'm absolutely certain I just want to keep going this way because I've had an, a, a transcendent experience of some kind? Sure. Um, I mean, I actually, um, there's actually two films that I have made. Um, you know, this is back in eight years ago when I first arrived in China, um, because I grew up in Hong Kong. So yeah. that's, that's actually Cantonese. So I didn't, I wasn't able to speak Mandarin very well, but, um, I had opportunity to work with, um, a local producer called, uh, Xi Nong. It's very well known, um, photographer and filmmaker in China. There's, that is a huge influence um, from when I was in the UK um, and when I moved back to China, um, I've heard his name many, many times and I really wanted dying to meet him, really. Um, and in the end, we actually, um, you know, sort of um, got together and made a film um, on um, these rare snub-nosed monkeys um, in the mountains of Yunnan. And that's also um, on PBS, I think, this is back in it was it was actually aired back in 2014 hmm. and it's called mystery monkey of shangri and that is that that's my first um I, I think i can call it professional films that i've ever sort of directed and um uh, dp'd oh, and wow. dop'd mm-hmm. um and you know that was a great honor and opportunity and you know we i have learned so much from it um, being an independent filmmaker. So that was, you know, sort of my first um, break in yeah. the industry. Um, but, you know, knowing, knowingly making a indie isn't really breaking into the industry. You, you, you know, you're ma- it's a different path to the actual natural history um, industry, the US, the UK, um, what makes, you know, some of the best um um, best documentaries in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second film actually is immediately after the first one, when we finished uh, Mystery Monkey of Shangara, it wasn't even aired yet. And I had an opportunity to um, work on a um, feature film, um, the Disney Nature feature film Born in China. So that was my second big break, mm. one after another. Yeah. Um, and that that actually made me understood how little I knew hmm. about filmmaking. Isn't that interesting? Um, and it, right. And yeah. that really pushes me and I push my boundaries and, uh, you know, um, and I was, again, I was lucky enough to going into the team as, as, you know, as a logistic person to look after hotels and food and money. Um, and very quickly having my own team, um, to be part, part as part of a cinematographer, so that I think that was you know something that sort of um, they gave me the opportunity, and I really grab hold of it and try to make the most out of it. And you know, throughout the time, I've learned so much. I've even you know talking to. I remember back then talking to some of the best cinematographers uh, in the world um, in natural history field, and when I was talking to them, 
when they were answering my question and giving firing back question at me, I have no idea what they're talking about. So I have to just waste, raise my hand and be like, oh, sorry, I need to go to the toilet and really quickly Google everything that I can Google <laughs> within the space of like five minutes just so that I can, you know, I can at least, you know, be on marginally the, the, the same level as what they're talking about. So that actually made me learn so much and they have helped me a ton so you know i'll be ever so grateful um to these guys yeah well uh, you're probably neither the first nor the last uh, uh, across anything to have to excuse themselves and go quickly google something just to get up to speed but that's uh but that you know these are we're getting secrets of a filmmaker here one way or the other so that's great so let's talk of course now about pandas born to be wild uh, initially my thought is before you and your colleagues began shooting the film even what were the guiding principles? Were there particularly important elements that you and your colleagues hoped to cover or, or to capture uh, before you even began day one of shooting? Yeah, so um, I think for us, um, the one of the main goals is to sort of film the, um, you know, what the what the reserve and the Chinese and the locals deemed unfilmable. Um, something that a lot of them, a lot of the locals, a lot of even um, sort of, you know, Western crews coming into China and try to film pandas in the wild just sitting there, you know, is already extremely difficult. But for me, you know, that's one of the goals that I really want to achieve because of Born in China, we weren't able to film panda just completely in the wild because it was so difficult. I've spent, you know, over over 25 days, well, I've been back to have 28 days filming days, and I was not able to film like I had 11 second footage of something that's not pandas. Oh, so, wow. you know, that sort of made me, you know, determined and sort of swear on myself that I, whenever the opportunity presents itself, I should make the most out of it, out of it and actually, um, you know, go and take on the task of filming pandas in the wild. And then the, the second goal that I personally have um, is that, I mean, pandas always had the um, sort of reputation of being cute and cuddly. They're not really, you know, they, they, they are one of the species that many people have opinion on where they shouldn't really be so focused to protect on because they're almost a species that aren't, you know, breeding anymore. Um, they are just looking cute and cuddly and there's a lot of funding going into it. Why don't you put more funding into other species where they are, you know, much more in needs, uh, in protections. Um, but, mm. you know, working with understanding and working with scientists in China and also with, you know, um, with um, scientists that actually worked in the field of wild pandas, um, reading, um, you know, many articles and scientific papers about it sort of made me realize that um, the sort of misunderstanding uh, on pandas as a species is very, you know, it's very deep actually embedded into, you know, this, this sort of uh, misleading conservation part of it where, you know, a lot of people just don't think that they're worth protecting. And and for me, I realized that, you know, that's something that I really want to change. Maybe, maybe um, even just the, uh, just for people to understand what pandas in the wild do, you know, they are not like what everyone thinks that they don't breed and, you know, they just sort of sit around and do anything. In fact, you know, in the wild, for me, seeing, um, hearing, and, you know, every year over the mating season, um, all the dramas, you know, I want to be able to capture it and also present it to the world that, you know, in fact, this species alone is not, you know, it's not a species that is that is dying and not worth saving. So that's, that's for me, is a very important part of why we wanted to make this film. Well, one of the things that you kind of alluded to is that I found really striking about the film is that for a lot of us, for better or worse, we know or we think we know a lot about pandas. And that knowledge is kind of mostly derived from captive pandas and those like end up being alone to American zoos. And especially when a panda mom gives birth to a panda cub, there's hoopla and pandemonium. And like you say, it's all cute and cuddly. But a big focus of this film is examining what pandas are like and how they behave in the wild. And the contrast, as you've kind of noted here, could not be sharper. 
I mean, they're, they're almost like an entirely different animal than what some of us have, have gotten to know or think we know versus what's uh, presented in Pan is Born to be Wild. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, um, one of the reasons that uh, the contract is so great but have not yet um, been shown is how it's because how difficult it is to film them in the wild. We, uh, as, as, a, as a team... Uh, being on, you know, three wild panda expedition, we we hear them like almost every day to every other day, you know. But you know, for you to actually being able to film them, is a completely different story. There's something that you know, it is is more daunting on you. I think that every morning you wake up, you have this fire in you that you want to go and film them. Um, but then when you come back, you you realize that you were so close, but, you know, yet you're so far away. And, you know, I think that was one of the reasons why people don't really, you know, understand it. I, I hope until now when this film is able to present itself to to show the world that, you know, actually in the wild, these pandas um, are just like wild bears, that they, you know, live their lifestyle being alone, um, but in in the mating season, they actually fight for love, and that's something that you don't see or hear in captive pandas. Yeah, again, there there was just elements of pandas that I guess we've gotten this sort of zoo slash fairy book kind of uh, representation. So, yeah, you don't think of them as being super solitary. You don't think of them as being particularly territorial both of which turns out to really be the case for wild pandas. And you don't think of them as being super aggressive, uh, which also you see them, especially when it does come to mating. So it's like, wow, I really have to rethink <laughs> what I uh, thought for years and years and years about pandas. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's uh, that that would be the sort of gold for, you know, at least people to understand that, you know, behind it um, there are stories that is untold, um, but you know, by all means, I think pan- there's a there's a reason um, in my heart anyway. There's a reason that why pandas is you know in in captivity and you know having them being cute and cuddly. And if I was pandas, I wouldn't you know I would choose the cushy life over the sort of rough terrain. You know, incredibly difficult. And you know, if you if you look at the pandas in the wild, um, the males they are they are you know in with many battle scars. You know, so I think that's that's you know the the sort of contrast in between are huge, and that is you know something I think is worth telling for sure. No, there were so many things. In fact, I'd be curious to know since we're talking about just some of the surprises that just a kind of a layperson like myself uh, came away from uh, viewing the film with. What were some of the biggest surprises that emerged either for you and your colleagues, or uh, in a moment I want to talk at least for a moment or two about the Wulong Panda Center. But I guess just generally for you or others that were involved in shooting the film, what were some of the biggest surprises that emerged? Um, I think um, initially, um, because we sort of go in um, to the sort of wild panda terrain with not, I mean, there just generally aren't that much advice from anyone um, because they're so rarely filmed and known. So I think the biggest surprise is how when the rangers were telling us you know, when we arrive, don't worry, we can just, you know, we will hike up um, relatively easy and it take like three hours to hike up the mountain with all your kit. But, you know, that's that's an easy day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you 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 know, we, we camp, we, we set up um, a base on the top of the uh, bridge um, and we just listen, you know, and that's that's the that's the key. And they said, you know, we just listen and we will hear them um, relatively soon. And apparently there's like certain times, like four o'clock in the afternoon in a rainy day is the best time to hear Panda have um, doing their mating call. And for me, I, you know, I was just expecting it to be sort of the, you know, the sound of grunting, but not, you know, not like, the, but it's relatively quiet, if you know yeah. what I mean. Like, you, because the mountain is huge and you just didn't expect it to be so almost groundbreakingly loud it was it was echoing the whole mount, the whole mountain and you can imagine you know being a team they're trying to accomplish something that's never really have been done properly before and yeah. once when we hear that we all just went into this you know immediately we went into the you know to them to to just try to just really want to rush over there and actually go and film them 
but yeah i mean that was you know that was just like touching the 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 surface of filming pandas and then i think from then on everything is surprising like the the difficulty um the terrain we have to go through i mean you know if if i was standing in front of a wild panda five meters away you wouldn't be able to see them um the bamboo forest is so dense mm. that you know you can't see i can't see my teammate in five meters we have to um you know when we know there's no pandas around we have to just call out each other and try to you should try to locate in the bamboo forest it's like a maze um and to you know to a point where for us lugging around equipment we have to really trying to make it you know as portable as possible where you know, I mean, filming, um, for the audience that don't know, filming, um, making natural history films um, that you see um, on PBS, um, you see on BBC and channels like that, um, we use really heavy equipment, you know, full-on cinema equipment that um, that is, you know, 15, 20, 30 kilos. Um, and, you know, and compared to where I have to sort of sacrifice, almost saying sacrificing the quality to skin down to really limit myself with the equipment because there's, otherwise you wouldn't be able to travel within the bamboos and you make so much noise that everything would just run away from you. So, so you have you know, to be more to mobile. Yeah, you have to be extremely mo uh, mobile. And yeah. uh, we had team uh, two teams of um, threes. So, you know, we have we, we really slim down the team. Um, we have to be mobile and we have to be very quiet as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and most of the days we're just hiking and looking for them um, and listening out. And once we, you know, I think the, the, hard, the hardest thing is because there's, there's roughly, if when a female's in heat, there's roughly around um, five days, plus and minus two days, that they would be calling and the males would be looking for them going to that battleground, we call it. Yeah, we actually call it the down the dancing ground um, with the rangers. Yeah. Um, but, well, that sounds um, more poetic than the battleground. But I mean, having seen <laughs> yeah, the film, sure. it actually is a bit of a battleground, at least at times, right? Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. I think I think you know there, there's a certain spots that the, the rangers known having pandas, you know, sort of um, fighting and over mating rights in these area. They they want to make it you know sound more poetic. Um, then battleground for sure. So we have, we just call them the you know the dancing ground, and where yeah. we're going to head to the dancing ground, and you know and over ridges and ridges we hear them. And honestly, for me, I would, I'm just looking blindly at this range of mountains. I have no idea where they are, and you know, thankfully we have these rangers that are incredible um, with incredible knowledge, and they understand their, this this mountain range, you know, so well that they were just, they're just hearing from this sort of landscape. They can almost pinpoint where the pandas are. I mean, it's just insane. Mm. Like, I just, that's also something that surprised me, yeah. you know, how accurate they can be. Um, and we would judge by the time of day, we would judge by, you know, um, sort of if we should approach the day or should we pinpoint it, you know, um, hike closer. But when I mean hike closer, that means go down a ridge and go up a mountain again on like terrain that is just you know there's no roads whatsoever just bamboo you have to just go straight down and straight back up just to get slightly closer so you can pinpoint it but you can't film it today because you know going from uh, a to b usually means you know four to six hours hike wow um so it's a matter of planning how we're going to approach it the next day you know, should both team approach it or the other team go to a different altitude looking for different pandas? I mean, it's, you know, that is, but I mean, I would say out of 10 tries, there would be maybe two tries that we see pandas um, and the rest is just hiking. Yeah. <laughs> they would, they sometimes they move on, you know, sometimes they would, they, they would stay around, but these were just too dense that my colleague had the opportunity to, that, you know, just sort of being as close as a couple of meters from two pandas sort of fighting, two male pandas fighting, but he just couldn't see anything. And he was so traumatized by it that for the next 10 days, every day he's like, I need to go to this place again. They might be there again. And we and the rangers would just keep telling him, like, I'm sorry, but this dancing ground is over because it's already past, hmm. you know, the three to four days and there won't be any more sound. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real 
um, I think is a real struggle um, and a real challenge for not only physical but also mentally as well. Yeah, well, it really gets the sense from your description, including this the last bit about your colleague who seemed to be insist that I'm going back to that same spot and I'll yeah. see them again because you really get the sense from watching the film and then now in addition, obviously, your description of kind of the backdrop for how some of this was filmed uh, is why there really hasn't been a film like this because, you know, it seems like you're up against so many things, the terrain, the nature of the pandas themselves, dumb luck, weather, I mean, who knows what else. So what goes with that, it seems to me, is that then just general knowledge of pandas, wild pandas, has necessarily been limited too until until this film. Well, right. I mean, that's that's exactly um, what we're hoping to, you know, to be able to you know, almost inform the viewers that, you know, this is what real panda is like in the wild. Yeah. Granted, um, back then, when we're making the film, we don't have anything to reference on. You know, you're just, you know, as you said, there's a lot of luck involved. But, you know, the amount of luck involved is almost, you know, you have to be so lucky. Yeah. Um, One of the key scenes that we were able to film that was um, we. That was the fact where we went up the mountain and the lower altitude. We think is relatively over because what happened is they they would have their sort of dancing ground lower. It's starting on a lower altitude um, because it get warmer earlier, mm. and then it will slowly go up in altitude and and actually um, up in the top of the mountains where you know over three and a half four thousand meters above sea level um the the panda will still be you know uh, still be having their dance um all the way into may where we usually go for um the panda um sort of mating period between uh march and april because that that's the period where you can go to places as accessible um and you know we we were heading up to the top just to see if the snows melted can we access the place um and once we arrived we realized it wasn't melted you know still very a lot of snow on the ground and it's not quite suitable for us to sort of hike in um to sort of relatively unknown terrain um but um as we turn around about to leave we hear panda calls so the whole team was like right mm. let's go up and see what happens and we because we didn't plan to go up whatsoever we just planned to wrecky the place um we didn't even bring any food we just brought water um and for us to actually making the call of right let's go up and at least trying to pinpoint them um, you know, even if we don't get to film them, at least try to pinpoint them. And we're hoping that it's still early in the mating uh, realm um, that, you know, we might have another day or two um, uh, after this. So we can, you know, we can go up and actually film the, the, the uh, you know, the, the main event. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, me and my team, um, we just rushed up as quick as possible. Um, where Wu, um, leading the other team, they are like, they're slowing down in the back and just trying to cover things that we may miss. Um, and, you know, the, the hike took us three and a half hours. Um, and when we finally got there, um, I I was way up the mountain looking down, looking at a tree where we can see a female above the tree. And then I just noticed that um, Wu's team is actually right next to them. But Wu and the team didn't see the panda in the tree. And wow. you can imagine, you know, being a massive panda in a tree at, the, at that altitude. Yeah. Um, there just isn't that many, that much vegetation in sort of early spring. Yeah. Um, slash, you know, slash winter, late winter. Um, but their camouflage is so well blending into sort of the gray background um as well as back then it was snowing really heavily that we didn't notice and we have to you know sort of shout at them at the radio it's like they're right up there you can see the female right up there so mm. they were literally in front of the background so that was you know the moment that we were able to actually capture that yeah um you know the drama the female coming down the male uh, underneath the you know sort of threatening each other um and there are times where the male you know walk like they would they would stroll past us, you know, um, 
and we'll get as close as five, ten meters from them with no covering, and we just freeze and stay wow. there and just hope for the best because there's not there's not much you can do. You can't outrun them. Yeah. You can't climb trees, and you know. And in fact, there's never really anything to tell you what to do. You know, there's you know there's brown bears and black bears and polar bear. You know what to do with them, but what do you do with a panda with black right. and white bear? Yeah, you know, we were never told what to so do. So little when you experience come face to, to face with one. Yeah, indeed. Yes, there's so little experience. Um, but you know, it was yeah, it was something that you know I I would always remember. You know, um, having the sort of um, not only having an opportunity, but but also the chances of being with pandas face to face, this close in the wild, um, and also having I have multiple uh, older males that actually trust us enough because we followed them enough um, that, you know, that we were able to be aside them with our cameras and following them and filming them. And that in the wild, that, you know, for me is, yeah, it's is, is unthinkable, really. Yeah, yeah it sounds um, you know, thrilling. We were thrilled. Yeah. yeah. Indeed. So this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Jackie Poon, producer, cinematographer of Pandas, Born to be Wild, a new documentary which premieres tonight on PBS stations nationwide. We're in our last few minutes of speaking with Jackie, but we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org, or texting 813-433-0885. So a couple other points I want to be sure that we address before we... At the end of our time here, Jackie, is a key storyline of the film that we haven't really touched on yet is the cub that's born in captivity but is undergoing training to become a panda that could survive and, and maybe even flourish in the wild. What sort of thinking and preparation were behind just that effort itself and then trying to document that on in the film? Um, I think that is, you know, the, I think the original, like what we wanted to do in the very beginning um, was to actually follow one of the main um, story we wanted to do was to follow um, a released panda baby um, and spending way more time. Um, you know, we're looking at five, six, seven years to be able to follow this baby uh, into the wild and see what this individual will uh, account and also um, any you know being able to survive yeah. um, you know starting off being in captivity and born in captivity and actually go out there into the wild and you know wanting to thrive and survive I think that's you know that's the ultimate challenge yeah um, but you know for us we're realizing that you know time is against us and not only that but I think you know one of the one of the real thing is we we can see um, what captive pandas like, but we never really know what wild pandas is like. Yeah. So I think that is what sort of driven us to really alter the story to a point where we want the audience to see what this captive panda is facing, like what you know the the what its future means um, for us, you know, as audience to see what he's facing in the future. I think that that is something that we thought it would be more interesting because you're already knowingly understanding what's going to happen to this little guy where uh, he is just so, you know, relatively happy and naive and being with mum yeah. and being actually abandoned by mum in the training program and then he have to go out into the unknown well. So, you know, for, for us, that is, you know, the, what, what drives us into filming the baby um, but in a way where it's all it's a program that they set up that the reserve set up and evolved um you know over years uh, of time you know to try and refine and make sure that the baby equipped with the knowledge to survive um and yeah we want to see the contrast in that and hence that's why you know we sort of decided to film the babies in captivity and what sort of makes this individual having the quality to be released. Yeah, gotcha. And sort of in our last moment or two here, uh, Jackie, but can you just sort of at least briefly describe the Wulong Panda Center, like what it is and what it typically goes on there? Yeah, sure. Um, so, um, you know, in a nutshell, there are two different programs. One is the breeding program and one is the reintroduction program. Um, the reintroduction program is the one we're focused on in the film mm -hmm. um, where they... 
um, they would select individuals, um, parents, mum and dad, um, that, you know, that they would um, look at their genetic um, and also their abilities and their background. Um, and once they have produced an offspring, um, they would also monitor these offsprings and train them. And there are different stages um, in the training program. And they are almost like, you know, going through exams. Mm -hmm. So they would see the ability of being, you know, being able to handle stress and being able to escape from danger and things like this and slowly sort of nurture them um, and, you know, to prepare them for, for the wild. I mean, that's, that, yeah. that is the... What, that's what they do for the wild training program. Yeah. And one thing I should just note briefly, too, about that that's interesting, because I've sort of long been interested in those rare researchers of, of various animals who dress in animal costumes. I almost did a show on it, because there's a, a UC Davis professor who, who dons a zebra costume. There's a Canadian researcher who dresses like a kind of elk to get closer to certain animals. And the keepers at Wulong dress as pandas, and I assume that's so that there's no uh, imprinting or attaching to the humans if these are pandas that are actually going to be reintroduced. Yes, I mean that yeah. that is the main focus on yeah. um, the, the the suit. Yeah. Um, I mean, originally um, was to you know sort of want them to make them associate that humans actually pandas, but this is back you know date twenty thirty years ago, and we're now evolved into them. Um, you know, the reserve don't want them to associate, you know, food equals human. So yeah. they're trying to, you know, dressing up to break up their image, really, um, to the babies. Gotcha. Great. Well, again, it's a really terrific film. And as I think we've noted here, there's all kinds of uh, interesting, surprising, illuminating things that people will find. And so it's Panda's Born to be Wild. It premieres again tonight on uh, wherever your PBS station is. That's where you'll find it. And I think otherwise you can catch it on the uh, pbs.org slash nature or WNET nature. And you can catch it that way, too, if you can't find it or aren't able to watch it tonight. But, uh, Jackie, thank you so much for making the time to join us from China. 12 hours ahead, no less, so it's really uh, even more uh, uh, impressive that you were able to do that. Thank you so much. It was really great speaking with you, and again, really, really enjoyed the film. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks again. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Maria Matlock of the Humane Society of Tampa Bay about its Wagaween event taking place this Saturday, October 24th. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a panda-related piece. Well, at least part of it's panda-related. This is Matt Bronger with Panda Butler in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Do you guys know what the secret is? It's a book that uh, was trumpeted by Oprah that uh, uh, is very big in Los Angeles, uh, very big with uh, actor spiritualists, I like to call them which is basically when you just want the universe to give you everything you want in a really selfish manner and you want to be a star. You want to be an entertainment weekly and you pray for the wrong things. That's all that is. But I'm not knocking it. Look, I think positive visualization is a handy tool and it's good. It's good to stay positive when you're negative all the time. It's, it doesn't help you at all. But I, I don't necessarily believe in the secret, but I'm an, I don't know. I don't know. It might work. Asking the universe for something might work. So I'm gonna try it right now. I'm gonna try the secret and see if it works, okay? So I am gonna throw out right now what I want from the universe and hope that I, that I get it. So here we go, okay? Panda butler! That's all I want. That's I want a panda that is also a butler. That's it. I want a panda that walks on his hind legs and often fails and tries to be my butler. Walks in while I'm watching TV with a tray of champagne flutes, which he will drop. <laughs> Granted, he will drop them, but he'll try. Walks in. <laughs> it's okay, Clive. You're still my man. High five. Actually, any bear that won't kill me. That's all I want, right? I will rubberize my home wherever he wants, right? Just as long as he does Like, can you imagine just sitting and watching TV with a bear that is also sitting and his little belly is going up and down with his breathing? His bear belly? You can put stuff on it, like a tray of cheese and crackers, and he occasionally just yells and you love it because it feels like commentary, right? You're right, dude. Jersey Shore is the end of all civilization. High five. 
That was Matt Bronger in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Panda Butler taken from his album Shovel Fighter. Now it's time to speak with Maria Matlock, marketing and PR manager at the Humane Society of Tampa Bay, here to fill us in on its Wagaween afternoon extravaganza happening this Saturday, October 24th. This is Maria Matlock on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Maria. Good morning. How are you? I'm really great. How about you? Good. Good. So thank you for having us on today to talk about our new event that's happening this Saturday. Um, it's something that the whole family can enjoy, and it's from 11 to 2. We are having trick-or-treating for the kids and adults, too. We'll have a couple of different stations set up at our new shelter, which I don't know um, if you've had the chance to stop by it, but it's huge. It's nearly 50,000 square feet, so we'll have plenty of room for people to come and um, kind of just enjoy the trick-or-treating experience. And then on top of that, we will have um, some grilled food out here. We will have pumpkin painting for the kids. We have this really nice um, mezzanine with a balcony, so um, all the pumpkin painting will occur outside, On and each family can have their own table. So that'll be really nice. Um, we also have a pumpkin patch on location, and we will actually have that all tricked out to have some hay and some um, unique pumpkins and a scarecrow um, to be like a little photo op section. And we will have folks there um, taking photos if you want to bring your pet or your family just to get like a little Halloween photo for your family. We'll be doing that too. And of course, we have our costume contest. That now, now we're getting now we're getting to the crux of it, right? It's, uh, yeah. So let's talk about that because this is a costume contest not only for kids, but for dogs. So yeah. So let's yeah. let's run down how it works and some of the key categories because I think this is perhaps the centerpiece of the afternoon, at least from my standpoint. Yeah. So we will. Um, you can either dress up your dog or your kids or both, and that's happening around 1230. You want to make sure when you get here to register both. Um, so that will be taking place in our nice open courtyard. So we have two little categories. We're just kind of keeping it uh, simple this year. Mm -hmm. So we'll have best costume and best trick. So we'll have a few judges out there, and um, we'll be waiting to see the pups and the kids kind of strut their stuff. We'll probably have something on Facebook, like do a Facebook Live. So yeah. if you can attend, you'll at least be able to see um, all the dogs and all the kids dressed up. And do we have any early predictions about what sort of uh, dog costumes in particular might be uh, anticipated? Um. Kind of a toss-up every single yeah. year, honestly, okay. of, of what comes. Yeah. We're hoping this year um, some dogs come dressed up just as maybe like dinosaurs or something mm -hmm. that was funny to see. Sure. Um, or just some common characters. We get a lot of Superman and yeah. that stuff. So. That's great. Well, so Maria... These, I think we've hit kind of the key things, especially, like I say, the costume contest, always a fave. But for folks who might want to just double-check details uh, or just get the whole lowdown, can you give us website information and or social media pages where people could get the whole sure. the whole shebang about um, the Wagaween? Yeah. So they can go to our website at humanesocietytampa.org, mm -hmm. or they can visit our Facebook Humane Society Tampa Bay, or our Instagram, also at Humane Society Tampa Bay. Great. Well, we're looking forward to it, and uh, as a new event, it sounds kind of cool and familiar and comfortable, but got uh, some some new elements to it that are exciting for, for folks, especially those who, you know, haven't been able to get out to too many events uh, yeah. lately, so this will be nice to uh, have some fun and uh, have some nice Halloween action and, of course, uh, again, see some dogs dressed. Absolutely, and, and free candy. <laughs> yeah, can't beat that. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, and uh, have fun on uh, on Saturday. All righty, thank you. Thanks, Maria. Bye-bye. I'm Duncan Strauss. You're listening to Talking Animals. Coming up at 11 on WMNF, it's Rob Lorai with Radioactivity. Followed at noon by Midpoint with NOLA. Then at 1 p.m., the music kicks back in with 360 Degrees of Blues, hosted by Harrison Nash, followed by Scott Elliott, and the All Souls edition of It's the Music. 
Meanwhile, on this show at the moment, as the prize for Name That Animal Tune, I'll be offering a Talking Animals t-shirt to the first person who calls. 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. Should've looked right He didn't see the station wagon Car, the skunk got squashed And there you are You got your dead skunk In the middle of the road Dead skunk in the middle of the road Dead skunk in the middle of the road Stinking the house Alright, we'll take any guesses that come in After the show finishes Because we have just about reached the end of today's edition uh, talking Animals on WMF Tampa. I invite you to return next Wednesday at 10 a.m. with my guest will be Dr. Neil Bernard, founding president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and part of a virtual VegFest set of webinar, uh, webinars being offered on Halloween weekend. So we'll speak with him about all kinds of things, including the webinar he'll be delivering on Halloween itself. Also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. Apple Podcasts are available there too, as well as all the other podcast platforms. There are also links to our Facebook page, our Instagram page, our Twitter feed, and more. Please like us on Facebook, the show, and or me personally. And follow me on Twitter and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our newsletter to find out about our guests a couple of days beforehand. And other news from the Talking Animals world. That's all found at TalkingAnimals.net. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. Stay tuned for Rob Lorai. This is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi, and beyond. Again, thanks for all who contributed to Talking Animals or just generally to WMNF. Last week in our abbreviated fund drive, we have another one starting Friday. So you, if you didn't have a chance to donate... Um, then you can do so uh, starting Friday morning, first thing. So we hope to hear from you then, WMNF.org, for those donations. So, again, my thanks to uh, Jackie Poon, to speaking to us from China, no less, 12 hours ahead. Really enjoyed speaking with him. And, again, the film Panda's Born Me Wild premieres tonight on your PBS station. This is Talking Animals on WNF Tampa, NPR News Headlines, and then Rob Lorai after that. Thanks so much.